but now I'll forget it later and then run out of time. So We are going to open God's Word this morning to the book of Mark, chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. While you're turning there, for those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Brad Zinnaker. I was a pastor for a long time. I am now a spiritual care chaplain with U of R uh, with hospice, and I work in the Finger Lakes area. So, uh, Those of you who know Rochester Christian School, my wife is the fourth grade teacher there, and so we have connections with money as well. And it is my honor today as well, I get to share the podium with Gary Harris later today who I got to work with at Wegmans. So my dad is here with me and uh, my family, and hopefully my mom is watching at home. So greetings to you this morning. Let's look at God's Word. Mark chapter 2, verses 23 through chapter 3, verse 6. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and as they made their way, his disciples began to pluck heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, Look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and was hungry, and he and those who were with him, how he entered the house of God, and in the time of Abiathar the high priest, and they ate the bread of the presence, which is not lawful for any but the priest to eat, and also gave it to those who were with him. And he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now again, he entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand, and they watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they could accuse him. And he said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. And he looked around at them with anger, grieved at their hardness of heart, and said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was restored. And the Pharisees went out and immediately held counsel with the Herodians against him in how they might destroy him. Our Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for this day, that we might come before you, as Mary said, and worship you and honor you and take a moment to just kind of breathe and let our body and mind and soul be at peace. Father, we have the freedom to worship here in this country. We have the ability to come here and meet together in this beautiful building. That is not the case around the world. Father, we pray for those around the world who Sunday is not an easy day for them because perhaps they have to meet knowing the threat of persecution, knowing the threat of death. But Father, we do thank you that you have called us to worship you, that you have given us this gift, as was just mentioned a few moments ago. Help us now as we look at the fourth commandment, Father, to understand it better, how we are to understand it and use it and apply it in our lives so that it will be what you want it to be, so that we may honor you. Father, thank you for your love, your forgiveness, your mercy. Thank you for each and every person that is here. Guide us now as we look at your word, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Billionaire Bill Gates was once asked why he didn't believe in God, and his answer was this, quote, just in terms of allocation of time resources, religion is not very efficient. 
there's a lot more I could be doing on a Sunday morning. Now many people, possibly some here today, might actually agree with billionaire Bill Gates. For many Christians, the idea of honoring the Sabbath is kind of a, kind of a tricky one to understand in our postmodern day world. Is it still valid? If so, why? What exactly is its purpose? How does one keep it? What's okay to do and not okay to do? What if I'm called into work? What if I regularly have to work? Does it matter if it's Saturday or Sunday? Does God really expect me to give Him the whole day? All those questions and many more may come up when we look at the fourth commandment in our time is of the essence society. The fourth commandment is one of only two in the Ten Commandments actually written in the affirmative. It's not a do not, it's a do. Right? It's a command to do something. It's also the longest in the ten. It's also the one command that while how we work it out is pretty much the same between the two texts in Exodus and Deuteronomy, the reason to follow it and do it changes. And so let's look at that. Exodus chapter 20, verses 8 through 11, and then Deuteronomy chapter 5, verses 12 through 15. Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, the first recording of the fourth commandment. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is the Sabbath to the Lord your God. And on it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your livestock, or the sojourner who is with you in your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. And he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath and made it holy. Now hear it again as it is repeated in Deuteronomy chapter 5. Verses 12 through 15. Observe the Sabbath day to keep it holy, as the Lord your God has commanded you. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but on the, sa- the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God, and on it you shall not do any work, you, your son, your daughter, your male servant, your female servant, your ox, your donkey, any of your livestock, or the sojourner who is within your gates, your male- and that your male servant and female servant may rest as, you, as-, may rest as well as you. You shall remember that you were a slave in the land of Egypt, and that the Lord your God brought you out from there with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. Therefore, the Lord your God has commanded you to keep the Sabbath day. So, as we look at those two, uh, as we look at the command in those two places, we see a couple of different things the way it's broken out. The first verse in both texts is the command honor the Sabbath. The second couple of verses are how to go about fulfilling it, how it applies to you and those in your household and those that you're responsible for. And then the last verse is the reason to do so. Now the command begins with the word to remember or to observe. If one is to remember or to observe it, it's likely that this is not the first instance of the Israelite people hearing the command in Exodus that it was always part of who they were, but it was the first time perhaps being written down. 
Here is the first instance in the Decalogue we are told to remember the Sabbath because it ties to God and creation. Remember in Genesis chapter 2 we read, By the seventh day the, the Lord had finished the work He was doing, so on the seventh day He rested from all His work, and God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it He rested from all the work of creating all that He had done. Now, again, it's important to remember, the text here says to remember the Sabbath by keeping it holy. What it does not say is that the day is holy. In other words, back then, Saturday, Sunday, now, neither one of them is more important than another day of the week. Tuesday is not more holy than Thursday. Wednesday is not more holy than Friday. Though most of us would argue Friday might be a little more fun than Wednesday. (laughs) Okay, good. Everybody's awake. To make something holy means we set it aside for a particular purpose. In this case, a sacred purpose. But remembering, one man writes, if I can get my pages here correct, says involves more than just our memories. It demands total engagement of our whole person in the service, in the service of God. So, so, for example, he says, remembering the Sabbath is like remembering one's anniversary. It's not okay to say, oh yes, honey, I remember it's our anniversary. And that's it. Right? It takes, he says, dinner and flowers and maybe even jewelry and a romantic evening for two. In much the same way, remembering the Sabbath means using the day to show our love for God in a special way. It means keeping it holy. We are literally to sanctify it or set it apart for special use. That means that when we come here on Sunday, we don't just do it out of rote indifference. It's not just standard operating procedure. It's not just a formality. It's not just something we do. Right? There's a purpose behind it. This may be actually why in Deuteronomy he reminds them with this phrase, as the Lord has commanded you, as I've previously commanded you. Because it seems like maybe some of you have forgotten that command. And here's an instance of it. Numbers chapter 15, 32 through 36. While the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. And those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done. And then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death as the Lord commanded Moses. It seems like they had forgotten the command. It seems like they had forgotten the purpose, the purpose of worshiping God and putting Him first. Okay, so we understand we're supposed to actively keep the Sabbath day holy, set it apart for special use, but what does that look like? And the next two verses in both accounts tell us. First it means, and Mary did this, Mary preached my sermon. Mary always, see, I love working with Mary because Mary preaches my sermon, and then if I miss anything, she's already probably done it. Thank you, Mary. <laughs> so, so first off, it means understanding that we have six days in the week, right, already, to work and do the things we need to do in order to make it through life. What one man writes, 
In America, we usually work at our play and play at our work. But as Christians, we ought to be the most faithful and diligent workers. Many of us thank God it's Friday, and we dread going back to work on Monday. But as Christians, we need to remember Genesis 3, how after Adam and Eve fell into sin, God cursed Adam, saying the working of the ground would be in painful toil. But while we remember that, we need to be careful also not to fall into the fallacy that Time Magazine did several years ago of seeing all work as a curse from God. Because that magazine article several years ago said that God's Word said that work was bad, in fact it was a punishment, but the author has his facts wrong. That's a misunderstanding of the first three chapters of Genesis. Genesis 1, 26-28 and chapter 2, verse 15 point to the fact that mankind was called to work before the fall into sin. Then God said, let us make man in our image and our likeness. Let them rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, over all the creatures that move upon the ground. So God created man in his image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it, rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and every living creature that moves on the ground. In Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and take care of it. So you see, work was always supposed to be part of our life. It's just not supposed to be all of our life. And as a tangent, I think it's possible based on the text before we fell into sin, we actually might work in heaven. So guess what? Your retirement's void. <laughs> You're just resting. <laughs> Right? But our work in heaven, again, this is a tangent, and I haven't been to heaven yet, so I could be wrong, but I'm a hospice chaplain. I have some interesting conversations with people. Our work in heaven may be much more enjoyable, right? Almost as like a craft or a hobby or something that, that we don't see as much as work, even though we are, in a sense, working. Okay, now I'll go back to the sermon because that's probably confusing. The seventh day is a Sabbath to God, a cessation, a rest from the common pursuits of life, and a setting aside of time for God. We're told in both of the places where the command is that not only are we not to do any work, but anyone that works for us, including our animals, so that everyone can rest. Now that prevents us from shifting our responsibilities onto others within our family or within our employ, right? Well, I get to take a Sabbath for us, but ha, you got to mow the yard, <laughs> right? It prevents us from doing that. But at the same time, as Douglas Stewart, one of my professors back from seminary said, it does not prohibit us from all exertion. It only prohibits us from doing what could be stopped without causing harm. Okay? What do we think? Good? Okay. It's calling down thunder, that's all. <laughs> calling down thunder. Sabbath breakers. <laughs> okay. Now I've got to remember where I am. Okay. Here we go. So it only prevents us stopping, right, that work that we could put off. 
as long as it, it doesn't prevent us from doing those things that might need to be done or something that, that if we didn't do it would cause harm to another. For example, it, it's okay to make dinner on Sunday, right? It's okay to feed the dog. It's okay to change your baby's diaper. Because if you don't do those things, people are going to go hungry, the dog's going to get mad, and the baby's going to get a rash, right? It's okay to do those things. Those are normal things. I'm not going to get in trouble for that. But what happened, unfortunately, over time with Sabbath observance was that it became a very distinct and legalistic element of Judaism. Violating the Sabbath became the ultimate breach of covenant loyalty. In doing so, was considered a threat to Jewish life. And so the oral law that grew up around God's written law included 39 categories of various types of work that were forbidden on the Sabbath. And so now we come back to our text in Mark. In the first of those two passages, uh, the disciples are walking with Jesus. They're kind of going on a hike, right? They're walking through some grain fields. They're kind of hungry. They pick a few grains of wheat. They rub it together. The Luke account says they rub it together and they eat it. And the Pharisees kind of take them to task. And this is why. Because picking the grain heads was considered reaping. And grinding them, as the Luke account says, was considered grinding, like grinding flour in a mill. So they were breaking the commandment by being reapers and grinders on the Sabbath. And because, they, because Jesus was responsible for them, they were also pointing the figure at him. But Jesus answers their questions of why his disciples are doing what they consider unlawful on the Sabbath with his own question referring back to 1 Samuel 21 when David and his friends are on the run once again, right? And they get to the temple and they ask for something to eat. And the only thing there is the bread that the priests are allowed to eat. Kind of this holy bread. But the priest gives it to David and his men and they eat of it, and nothing happens. They're not condemned. God does not condemn them. And that's Jesus' point. There's prior precedent here that the Pharisees should recall. The precedent, as Jesus points out, is that human need takes priority over ceremonial law. The disciples here were not doing something wrong because they were lazy because they were purposeful lawbreakers, because they were rebels without a cause. None of that. They were hungry, like David and his followers. And then Jesus makes perhaps one of the most powerful statements in the early chapters of Mark. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Now, because the Sabbath was given over to mankind for rest by God, who has the right to determine Sabbath observance? Man? No. God. And that's exactly what Jesus was speaking against because they were misinterpreting Sabbath law. Only God has the right to correctly determine Sabbath observance. 
And so if David wasn't condemned for his violation, then how could the Son of Man even be questioned for as he proclaims in their hearing, the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. So see, there's actually two huge statements here. It's not just about the Sabbath. Jesus is stating he's God. He can say what he says about the Sabbath because he first declares, I am God, and God's the only one who can declare what right Sabbath observance is. And now I will declare that to you. He has equivocated himself with God. And if God originally gave the Sabbath and determined its purpose, then Jesus has a right to determine its purpose as well. And he in no way violates or changes anything that God's Word ever said. When he declares he is Lord of the Sabbath, lordship includes his right to own it, interpret it, preside over it, and ennoble it. Okay. So back to what keeping the Sabbath looks like. We have six days in which to pursue the common activities of our lives, including work and providing for our families, but what about on that Sabbath day? Because if anything in our day, we're not too strict. We tend to be too lenient, and we miss out on the benefit of a Sabbath rest. So studying the Scriptures and doing my research over the years and thinking about it, I would have to agree that the Scriptures call for Sabbath to be a day of worship, a day of mercy, and a day of rest. It's a day of worship as we are called to in both passages to remember all that God has done and to proclaim His glory for it. First off, to remember His work in creation. And then second, to recall His great redemption of His people out of the slavery of Egypt. Which again is a reason why we're not to work, because we're no longer slaves. It's also why we don't have others who work for us than work, because everyone should get the opportunity to worship God even if they don't want to. In other words, if you're an employer and you have employees, it's good to give them the benefit, the option of being able to worship God too. Now, maybe they're not going to worship God. Maybe they're not Christian, but they certainly aren't going to have an opportunity to worship God if they're always working on Sunday, right? You can't invite them to church if you're sending them to work. This affects how we run our businesses. Everyone should have the option, the freedom to worship God. And here I have to add another instruction on the Lord's Day. Why do we worship on Sunday and not Saturday? Because that's always a question that comes up, right, in theological circles. It's usually like a stump the pastors. If I can ask him this question, then we can just, you know, kind of keep wasting time. <laughs> the Sabbath in the Exodus text looks back to the seventh day of creation when God rested. But then we shift, right, to the Deuteronomy text. It's the people's deliverance from Egypt, their rescue from bondage. Now notice, other than minor word differences, the main difference in those two texts is the reason why to keep the Sabbath. The command is still there. How to do it is still there. Those are almost word for word. But as one scholar notes, God who himself is unchanging uses different theological emphasis in encouraging his people to understand their call to worship him. First, to remember his work in creation and mirror him in resting. And then second, after the exodus, for the people to remember their redemption and cessation from slavery. Now, if there was one other event in the history of God's people where he might want us to honor the Sabbath 
to remember one day out of seven, perhaps as grand or grander than those two events, what would that event be? This should not be a hard test. <laughs> the resurrection, right? The fourth commandment is interesting because the ceremonial aspect of it changes based on what is being celebrated, but the moral aspect always stays the same. So when Jesus fulfilled the law, he fulfilled all ceremonial law of the Old Testament, and it no longer is required. Colossians 2 says, Therefore do not let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival, a new moon celebration, or a Sabbath day. Those are shadows of the things that were to come, but the reality is found in Christ. See, that's dealing with ceremonies. The moral law is still in force as we live rightly in our relationship to God. And the early church recognized this, and so they moved to celebrating the Lord's Day to the first day, remembering the day in which Jesus, God, who created the earth and rescued His people from Egypt and laid down His life on the cross for our sins, they moved it to that day that they remembered as the resurrection, the first day of the week. John 20, verse 19 on the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood amongst them. Peace be with you. Acts 20, verse 7. On the first day of the week, we came together to break bread. Paul spoke to the people, and because he intended to leave the next day, he kept on talking till midnight. We'll just be here till three or four. 1 Corinthians 16, 2, on the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with his income, saving it up so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. In Revelation 1, 10, on the Lord's day when I was in spirit, I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet. So we worship on the Lord's day. We remember his works in creation. We remember his redemption of his people Israel, but we remember especially our own redemption from sin and recreation in Jesus Christ at the resurrection. That's why we celebrate the first day of the week. Okay, so the Lord's Day is a day for worship. It's also a day for mercy. In the second part of the Mark passage, the, the verses in chapter 3, right, we read that Jesus heals a man on the Sabbath. One, one might rephrase Jesus' question in Mark 3, verse 4, to say, is the Sabbath only a day to refrain from doing evil? Or is it also a day to do good? Now, it was known and accepted back then that, uh, that any danger to life did take precedence over the Sabbath. But medicine and healing, again, were within those 39 categories of work that were strictly regulated. Since the man's hand was not a life-threatening injury, like he'd had it for a while, he wasn't going to die that day because of his hand injury, right? If Jesus healed on the Sabbath, he would technically, according to the oral law, according to the Pharisees, he would technically be violating God's law. Listen to this. Philip Ryken tells us that some rabbis maintained back then that if a wall fell on top of someone on the Sabbath, only enough rubble could be removed to find out how badly the person was injured. If he was not too badly injured, then he had to be left until the Sabbath ended when the rescue could be completed. When I served in Iowa, 
in 2008, our town was hit by an EF5 tornado with winds in excess of 200 miles per hour. There were definitely walls that fell on people. Could you imagine if I had gone around and said, eh, you can wait till tomorrow. <laughs> no, that's, that's, that's not how it works, right? I, I would lose my job so quick. Could you imagine? That's, no. Jesus shows us the right way to glorify God on the Lord's day through acts of mercy. And that's why he reaches out and heals the man's hand. And there are at least two other accounts in the Gospel of Luke as well. Luke 13 and 14 of Jesus healing on the Sabbath. It's a day for mercy. It's a day for helping those in need. And finally, the Lord's Day is a day for rest, as we've indicated earlier, from our labor or strivings. Now, this isn't just a focus on physical rest necessarily, but that can be part of it. But it really is a refocus of our lives on God. We rest because God rested from his work in creation. We rest because God freed Israel from slavery, redeeming them as his people. We rest because Jesus accomplished our salvation on the cross, and none of what we do can replicate that. We rest because our physical bodies in Christ, our whole selves, spiritually, mentally, every bit of our being need that rest, and there is a rest coming for those who are faithful. Hebrews 4 says, For in Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken about another day. But there remains then a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For anyone who enters God's rest also rests from his own work, just as God did from his. Let us therefore make every effort to enter that rest. You see, I think the Sabbath here, and especially as it connects to that passage, reminds us that there are the greatest events of God through history, the creation, the exodus, the resurrection. But what? There's one more day, right? When he comes again, and we are with him in that eternal Sabbath rest. It also looks forward to that day when our souls are finally at peace and, we, and that contentment that we've always searched for is there, fulfilled in God. It's hard, I agree, it's hard for our postmodern ears to hear that one day out of seven should be given over to God. Even for believers, that's hard to hear. People often want to know what they can do and what they can't do. But as one man, notes, one man notes, that's a poor place to start. Because what we're really looking for is what can we get away with while still appearing to keep the Sabbath. Well, that was the Pharisees' problem. We don't want to be modern-day Pharisees, do we? We're looking for loopholes at that point. We're missing the point of the day. A Sabbath before God doesn't mean you become a hermit. You don't go hide in a cave and chant hymns. That's not what we're saying. It means you come together and worship God with other believers. You think of others first and perhaps how you could help them. Maybe you come as a family during the day before God and look at the week's schedule and discuss realistically what can actually be done. What is it we need to pray for? What is it we need to prepare for? As we ask for God's wisdom and patience and calm and rest and strength then things will start to naturally sort out as we get our priorities aligned with God, as we realize what's really important. And yes, there may be a time for actual physical rest 
that some people call a nap. But often what I hear, and especially when I was a pastor, and especially from younger families in the church, especially if they had lots of kids, was how much they struggle with having enough time in the week at all, and they're already so stretched thin on time, going in several different directions at once, that they have become mastered by time instead of mastering their time. And yet, at the same time, in our overly saturated media age, how many of us whittle away time on frivolous things like social media and video games? Those of you who don't do that can keep your hands up. (laughs) Right? You see, that's what Satan wants. He wants us to be frantic about the amount of time we have to do stuff, while on the other hand, wasting it so it makes us more frantic. God doesn't want that. He wants us to make our time count. But in order to do that, we have to trust our time, our lives, into God's God's hands. It means I, I, I have to be okay with that. Instead, what we often find is that people looking at a sermon like I've just preached, and we're almost at the end, so if you're like already in trauma, we're almost there. Right? Because many people are hearing this sermon right now and they're thinking, oh my word, oh my word, I've got to do more in less time because now I have to take Sunday off. I've really got to go to the bathroom and get anxious. Right? And they're starting to freak out. Because their lives, now we finally come to the water here, right? Their lives are like this quart sized jar and they're trying to shove all of that into a pint-sized jar. This is the amount of time they actually have. This is the amount of time they're trying to have. But God doesn't give us any more time than what we have. I think it's pretty obvious what's going to happen here, right? You can't put it all in. And if you keep trying to force it in, what happens? It just keeps coming out. And what happens if I didn't have this on this nice white tablecloth? It would be blue about now. Right? And so much of us, so many of us can relate to that in our lives. We're, we're trying to shove so much in that jar that it's all getting screwed up. We have what social media pundits coined years ago, FOMO, fear of missing out. We see everybody else doing everything. We think we've got to do everything. We're trying to cram it all in. Have we ever come before God and actually asked Him what His priorities are? Have we ever come before God and realized, like Mary said, that He gave us this as a gift to rest, to renew ourselves, to have Him as our priority? Dear God, we thank you for this day. We thank you for your many blessings, that you are a holy and wondrous God. Father, I certainly do not want anybody to go out of here more frustrated or upset, confused or conflicted. But I do want us all to be challenged. God, I think you want us to be. Help us with our priorities, Father, to put you first and to do what's right but not in a way that makes us upset or negative, God, but in a way that reflects on the fact that this is given as a gift. It's given as a helpful tool. It's given as a rest. It's given as something to help us reprioritize our lives. 
Father, how many great gifts have you given us? Creation, the rescue from Egypt, the resurrection, and in one day, heaven. You are a wondrous and good God. Help us to remember that, that you love us, you forgive us, you make us for yourself. Father, may we rest in you. May we use this day to glorify and praise you. May we use this day to reach out and to help others. May we use this day to rest and reprioritize our lives. In all this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.